You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Chapter 19, we see right after Paul had this ministry to the 12 disciples, a different 12 disciples. These are 12 Ephesian disciples that he was able to explain more accurately uh, who Jesus was, who the Holy Spirit was, and we see that they uh, were baptized, these 12 disciples, baptized in the name of Jesus, and uh, they were also baptized with the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and no doubt went from there out to be witnesses in the world, but it says there that in verse 8, then Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. And when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, and he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So some of this is nothing new. Paul had that ministry to the synagogues that he would travel to the, the various cities and their synagogues. Uh, his custom was to go in there first, first right off the bat, go in and begin reasoning with the Jews and persuading them and demonstrating by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. We've noticed for the last couple chapters that his tool of that reasoning and his tool of that demonstrating were the Old Testament scriptures. And so how good for us to learn those Old Testament scriptures that point towards Jesus being the Messiah, that not only to the Jews can we testify and demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, but even to the Gentiles, because the Messiah was to have a ministry to the whole world, even to the Gentiles. He would come and, and undo those heavy burdens and let the oppressed go free, came to save the people from their sins. That's good news. That's the gospel, even to us Gentiles. But there, as he preached, you know, there was kind of that, some good as he taught there in the synagogue, some good stuff. Some people would yield their hearts to Jesus and heed the things spoken by Paul. But it seems like there was a greater majority that would harden their hearts against the gospel. And so we see here that some were hardened and did not believe. <clears throat> that word hardening is an ongoing process. There, it didn't just happen once. All of a sudden they were, they were hard. Bam! Lickety split. But we see there was this process of the Word of God being spoken to them, the Holy Spirit speaking to them, and just this continual rejection, uh, hardening of their heart to the Word of God. We see the similar thing happened to Pharaoh back in the book of Exodus. You know, time after time after time, ten times, uh, Moses went and begged with Pharaoh to let God's people go. And it would say that, you know, Pharaoh would kind of, oh, okay, take him. And then he'd kind of back up. No, 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 you guys can't go, you know. And it would say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And 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 time after time after time until finally the last time it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There was a time that Pharaoh had blasphemed, really, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. Continual rejection of the Holy Spirit, where Pharaoh just, you know, eventually had, uh, had said to the Lord for that last time, I'm done. And the Lord knew it. 
And so the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in this case, these guys, you know, time after time of Paul for three months, reasoning and demonstrating these guys hardening their hearts, hardening their hearts more and more and more till finally, you know, the Lord, it doesn't say that that happened right here in this passage, but eventually the Lord would harden their hearts. The Lord would harden their hearts. You know, it's been said that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You know, you can take a lump of clay and place it out in the sun and time and time of the sun just penetrating and hitting that, that clay, that'll be hardened. And you take something of just different characteristic like wax and just set it there. It's the same sun. And, you know, really quickly, that sun just melts the wax. It just completely is, is, uh, is you know, dripping all over the place. And, I, you know, we know that every Sunday, that's the case with hearts that come into this place. Hearts that come into this place that, you know, the, the Word of God goes forth and the Holy Spirit speaks in power. But there's a resistance in a person's heart. There's a resistance to the Word of God. There's a refusal to repent. There's a refusal to heed the things spoken uh, by the Lord on that given Sunday. And, you know, my prayer is just that the Lord, every Sunday, I just come, Lord, soften the hearts to hear your word. Lord, soften the hearts. Just, Lord, as much as depends on you, Lord, be that God that just softens hearts and fight for the people that are coming. And I just encourage you guys that on a Saturday night, you would just be praying. A Saturday is, you know, coming into Sunday. It's, Lord, Lord, be preparing my heart for the word that's going to be taught tomorrow. And Lord, be preparing the people's hearts that are going to be coming, that they'd be soft. And Lord, that you would cultivate the hearts as we read the parable of the sower and the seed, that there's different hearts as the seed goes out, lands on the soil of the heart, and some you know, some are rocky hearts, you know, and the soil and the seed just doesn't even doesn't even give root. You know, the bird comes and snatches away and carries it off. You know, their heart uh, is the seed lands on the soil of that heart. Thorns come in and immediately choke out that seed so that it dies. And later on, Jesus says that those thorns are the cares of this world. You know, but there's a heart in there that's a soft heart. A heart that's been cultivated by the Holy Spirit to receive the word. That those roots would go down deep and it would grow and bear fruit. And pray that for yourself. You know, so often it's the weekend and we just wear ourselves out on a Friday and a Saturday and we stay up really late on a Saturday and just partying hardy, you know, and hanging out with friends. And then, you know, just, oh, it's a burden to wake up to, for, for church on Sunday. And man, you're just lucky to make it in here and just kind of plop down and just, ah, oh, you know, I've been there. <laughs> and you just, your heart's not ready to hear the word. You haven't had the Lord, you know, preparing your heart. So I just encourage you guys to be mindful of what the Lord's doing in you throughout the week. And man, I know these times in the Word, in my devotional time, or in the men's group, or the women's group, just be preparing your heart. Ask the Lord to prepare your heart uh, before uh, the, uh, the Word goes forth. And maybe right now, maybe right now you would even just say, Lord, I, that, I'm, I'm hard right now. I'm hard. I don't want to be here. I can think of other places I'd rather be. You know, this, this, I'm just not feeling it today, Lord. Soften my heart. And, uh, and he's faithful uh, to do that. 
And so we see that, uh, you know, these guys, some of these guys were hardened. They did not believe, but it didn't just end at an unbelief. It went further into really a slandering of Christians, of persecution, as they spoke evil of the way. And I love that that's what Christians were called before they were called Christians. Uh, we were called the way, you know, no doubt because, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. You know, interesting, I haven't done a whole bunch of studying on it, I haven't really read all the blogs or anything, but that, that new Rob Bell book that's coming out. That, you know, basically says that uh, anybody, uh, whether you're Gandhi or, you know, whether you're part of a different faith or whatever, you don't have to have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved, you know. And uh, just, you know, he wouldn't call himself a universalist, but that's just what it is, that everybody uh, will end up being saved. And uh, it's just interesting that Jesus says there's one way. There's one way and it's narrow, And broad is the way that leads to destruction. But man, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And he is that way. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Savior. And as we read in Acts chapter 4, nor is there salvation found in any other, Peter proclaims. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which men must be saved. It's Jesus. Anything else is heresy. And the Jews, as they would hear of this Jesus, Messiah, Yeshua, Mashiach, you know, they would say, forget it. We don't want anything to do with that Galilean carpenter. And their hearts were hardened and they began to mock and slander the way. And I'll tell you what, guys, when you hold to that message that Jesus is the way, prepared to be slandered, prepared to be mocked, prepared to be called narrow-minded. But Jesus was narrow-minded. We're in good company. (laughs) We're in good company. And we've got great authority on which to make such claims, okay? Uh, and so, the, the, you know, Christians were, had this evil message out against them um, before the whole multitude. So Paul departed from them, from the synagogue, and withdrew the disciples. We know there's at least 12 of them. Uh, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that, you might underline this, all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and and Greeks. And so similar to as in Corinth when he was persecuted in the synagogue and you know he's you know he washed his hands of the Corinthian Jews and kind of kicked the dust off of himself, he walked outside and just went right next door uh, to Justice's house. Went right next door to the synagogue and began to teach and to preach and he spent a good amount of time there so that even the the ruler of the synagogue Crispus uh, came over and was converted uh, to Christianity. And so here we see him going out, you know, okay, you guys, you've hardened your hearts. Okay, you know, I I did my part, told you the message of Jesus, and now I've I've been faithful to that call, and now I'm going to go out and I'm just going to start ministering outside the synagogue. You know, that's a great thing to note, is that not all ministry happens within the synagogue or within the religious walls, you know. It's great to invite a buddy or a gal to church, that's great, but some people will never set a foot in church, or if they do come in, they're just weirded out the whole time. 
You know, there's a great thing about going out onto the campuses or going into homes and just inviting friends to the homes and, and telling them the message of Jesus. It's just a different venue. It's just a different place that the Lord is able to work in. And here Paul reasons for two years in this school, a secular school by, you know, was either owned or, or taught, you know, one of the teachers there was this Tyrannus guy, a Greek guy whose name, his name literally means tyrant, you know, and whether his mom gave him that name, that little tyrant, you know, stealing cookies from the cookie jar or his friends or his students called him that, you know, a tyrant, you know, um, but you know, that was, that was his name. And uh, we don't know if he was a Christian or what. A lot of guys just think that Paul rented this school uh, for class. And, uh, you know, need to think about this church basically started in a school. And the church that I was a part of in Corvallis for 10, uh, 12 years was in a school. So it goes back as far as Paul's day to start churches in schools. But something interesting about this that you see in the original language, one of the translations puts it that Paul would actually begin teaching at um, at 11 a.m. Okay, what's the big deal? Uh, the big deal is that Paul, a tent maker, and this is just the culture of the day, uh, you know, he would begin making tents at 7 a.m. early morning. And he would work and make tents till about 11 in the morning. And then in the culture of that day, there were no air conditioners, no HVAC guys, you know. And, uh, and so it would just get brutally hot. And so people would take a siesta from about 11 in the morning to 4 or 5 in the evening. Uh, during that hottest time of the day, uh, shop was closed and everyone would go home and just try to stay in the shade and just take a nap. In fact, one of the ancient writers said you'd find more people sleeping at 1 p.m. than you would at 1 a.m. back in the day. You know, guys are just snoozing, taking that, that nap, trying to stay cool. But what does Paul do after a good four hours of hardy labor? He doesn't go snooze, but he goes into the school and he starts making disciples. He starts you know, preaching and reasoning to no doubt lots of non-believers, but he also had this kind of school of ministry going on there for two years. And at about 5 p.m., the doors of the school would stop and he would go back to tent making. And it's such an example to us, number one, of this guy, Paul, who saw the importance of making disciples, saw the importance you know, he could have been like, this is my third missionary journey and I'm Paul the Apostle and by gosh, you know, I need a break and I need to just go enjoy the sights and, and sounds of, of Ephesus. But no, he realized just that important commission by Jesus in Matthew 28. I'm going to go, I'm going to make disciples. I'm not to go and have a vacation. You know, I'm going to go and make disciples on this missionary journey. And he did just that. For about five hours a day, six days a week, two years, that totals about 3,105 hours of reasoning and teaching and preaching there in Ephesus. That guy had a heart to make disciples. And again, to apply that to us, lots of hard workers in this church, lots of people that break a sweat during the day. You're up before the sun rises and, and you know, you're, you're providing for your family. But there's also a cost to us as men and as women that work to provide for the needs of our home. 
We work for those things and that is a good thing. We're told that, you know, a man that doesn't provide for his own household is worse than a non-believer. But it doesn't end there. Within those days, there's also those times for being, uh, being a discipler, being a teacher, taking a few young men, young women, or, you know, whoever would want to be taught. Young in the faith is what I mean. We don't discriminate around here, you know. Uh, but taking them alongside and teaching them accurately the ways of the Lord. But it's costly. It cost Paul here. It was grueling during the heat of the day after he'd already worked a shift and knew that he had a shift in the evening. It's costly. But it wasn't just the discipler who made the cost. It was the disciples. The people that would come to learn and to grow and to be taught and to be equipped for ministry. And so there's a cost on the teacher's end. There's a, there's a cost on the student's end as well. The students working, providing for their home, providing for their needs, working hard. Didn't have the machines and the computers that we have nowadays. You know, they're, they're out there digging and they're out there, you know, cutting and, you know, just whatever, you know, picture the, the tent making trade, whatever else it might be. But they counted that cost of being a disciple as well. You know, Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he's got to count that cost. He's got to carry his cross. And no one who would go build a tower would start building that tower without figuring out how much it's going to cost to build the tower. Lest he get halfway done and there's this half-built tower up on the hill and everyone sees it and makes fun of him going, that fool didn't even make a budget of what it would be, you know, to, to make that tower. What's your, have you made a budget of what it's going to cost to be a disciple? Sat down with your Excel spreadsheet and got all the formulas plugged in and said, hey, what's it cost to be a disciple? Not much, just everything. Just everything. Everything is Jesus's. Nothing that we have or do or want or dream of is our own anymore. And so to grow in the Lord, there's a cost of time spent in the word, time spent in prayer, time spent reaching out across the body and, you know, helping one another out and um, edifying one another and building one another up. Have you counted the cost? Have you even thought about the cost as a Christian? I encourage you, take some time with the Lord this week. Say, Lord, what would you have from me? Lord, is there something else that you'd like me to to be involved in here in the church so that I can serve and be a member of the body? Be a member of the body. But we see that that time, those two years, that over 3,000 hours time spent there in Tyrannus's school, that there's a fruit from it all, that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Fruitful ministry. Most believe that it was from this time and this school of discipleship here, really, that the seven churches that we read about in Revelation, one of them being Ephesus, and we'll talk more about that next week, uh, or by, by chapter 20 for sure, uh, But all seven of those churches were a a fruit of this missionary journey and this time here 
at Tyrannus's school. From there, they were equipped and they went out to Pergamos, Thyatira, Lystra, you know, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to Laodicea, you know, uh, to Philadelphia. And, and even there in Hierapolis or Colossae, just all was a fruit from this time there in Tyrannus's school. How'd you like to have been part of that school of ministry? Pretty cool. And then verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. So kind of cool to read of these unusual miracles. They're special, extraordinary, remarkable miracles uh, that we see, you know, specifically were here in Ephesus. They were encouraging miracles. You know, in Corinth, Paul had the vision of Jesus in the middle of the night saying, hey, don't be afraid. You know, no harm will come to you. Uh, I've, I've got many people in this city. That was encouraging to Paul in Corinth. Here in Ephesus, he has another thing that the Lord uses as encouragement to the apostles. And that is these unusual miracles that validated the message that Paul would bring. They never replaced the gospel or replaced the word of God or replaced those times in the school of Tyrannus. Oh, no time for study. We got to go out and, you know, sweat on aprons, you know, and hand them out to people. You know, it never replaced that, but rather validated uh, the word that was being taught. And we see in Hebrews chapter two, verses three through four, we see that the signs and the wonders and the various miracles bore witness to the great salvation spoken by the Lord. This was all just a a witness to what Paul was preaching. So that his handkerchiefs, uh, which really is literally translated as sweatband, you know, you can just picture him working in the heat, you know, making tents and having a cool Dennis Rodman headband on or one around his wrist, you know, and uh, as he sweat on it, he's like, man, I, I got all these people that, hey, you know, take my sweatband and, and take it over there and pray for these people. Or his apron, which speaks of his, his uh, wood, like a woodworker's apron or what he'd be wearing uh, as he's making tents there. And, uh, you know, interesting though, you know, what's up with this? <laughs> what's up with this? It seems a bit superstitious. And as you know what Ephesus was like, it was a very superstitious place. Uh, all about idolatry, all about paganism and all of this. And and that was the crowd that Paul was reaching out to. And in a way that wasn't compromising to the truth of the scriptures or to the character of God, God met Ephesus where they were at. Wasn't compromising anything. He wasn't, you know, God wasn't allowing cases for, you know, use of medians or psychic hotlines or anything like that. He's just meeting them where they're at, where he knows here's some people that uh, a boost to their faith would be something tangible, like the use of an apron here or the use of a sweatband, you know? And, you know, there's something about those times where we can tangibly grasp the Lord. Uh, that are encouraging and thrust our faith. And we see that with the woman, with the issue of blood, who in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew, we read, had this issue of flowing of blood for 12 years. Doctors couldn't heal her. 
uh, she wasted a lot of money seeing all these physicians. And one day she sees Jesus on the way to, I believe it was Jairus's house. And there's a crowd following Jesus. And she watches Jesus pass through and she says to herself, if I could just get through the crowd and touch the hem of Jesus's garment, I'll be healed. You know, was there anything special about the hem of Jesus's garment? No, she just knew, man, I just need to touch Jesus. I just need to touch Jesus. I just need something tangible to reach out and touch and grasp a hold of. And it just boosts her faith. And she presses through the crowd and she reaches out and she touches just the hem of Jesus' garment and immediately stops and goes, who touched me? And the disciples said, what do you, what do you mean who touched you? You're, there's a throng about you. There's a multitude about you. And you say, who touched you? He goes, no, someone touched me. I felt power go forth from me. And I've always loved that story as the woman goes, oh, it was me, it was me, I touched you. And she was healed from that moment. And then I just love in, in our prayer meetings as we have people come for healing or just you know, need a miracle in their life. They need the Lord to move in an incredible way. I've always held that story of the woman with the issue of blood. That we would cry out. And, and here in Prineville, we don't have the sweat rags or anything like that. But Lord, increase our faith so that we would cry out for a healing or for salvation or for a revival in such a way that in heaven you would cry out and say, Who touched me? Lord, what do you mean who touched you? Churches are praying from all over the world right now. No. Prineville. Prineville. Somebody touched me from Prineville. I felt power go forth from me. May we have that type of faith that, that cries out, even though we don't have the sweat rags of this day, we don't have the aprons in this day, may we still cry out and, and, and even ask for an increase in faith like the disciples did. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, help us to, to not just look for physical things, but Lord, may we have faith. The substance of things hoped for, as Hebrews 11 tells us, the evidence of things not seen. And so, you know, these, these aprons, these sweatbands were used there. And uh, people were healed. The gospel was validated. Lord, whatever you need to do in this town to just validate your gospel and make it real to people. Open their eyes, Lord. Goes on to say there, you know, as, as there's this kind of cool, you know, heaven meeting earth moment there in Ephesus. People are seeing it. The world are seeing it. And... Uh, even evil spirits at the end of verse 12 went out of people as these articles would touch them or whatever. In verse 13, it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves. And you might underline that they took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And so there's there's great things happening. People are being healed in Ephesus. Demons are being cast out. And you have these group of vagabond traveling exorcists, you know, that are Jewish. And they, you know, basically what they would do is they would have kind of a book of phrases, you know, uh, that seem to have worked in times past. 
And they've seen this, you know, Paul has these powers over unclean spirit. We've heard of Jesus of Nazareth having power over unclean spirit. And here's kind of the formula. It seems the way they did things. So let's write it down in our books and just add it to some of the hocus pocus that we've got here in casting out, casting out these demons. These guys took it upon themselves. They had no calling from the God over uh, who, who was in control over the demons and the principalities of the, of the air. Uh, they, they hadn't had this call on their life. They took it upon themselves. And as they went out, they just threw out these, well, maybe this will work. We exercise you in the name of, of Jesus and, and Paul. And what other names are there? That's it. Jesus and Paul. Okay. Jesus and Paul, come out. And these seven sons of Sceva, you know, these guys that have a very religious background. They're sons of a chief priest. Try to do it to the, this evil spirit. And man, I'll tell you, whenever you have... And a demon say to you, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? <laughs> you know, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's time to get out of there. Okay. Um, but interesting there in verse 15, this evil spirit, something to just know, you know, these, these demons, they're, they're smart guys. You know, they've been around for a while. They talk, you know, um, they're, they're powerful. And, and we see that they knew Jesus. You might underline that word know. It's the word gnosko, which means to know by experience. They knew, they knew Jesus from before the foundations of the world. They were created by Jesus. They had this time in heaven as angels with Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity in heaven. And they fell. They united themselves with Lucifer and his pride, and they were cast from heaven like lightning. And we see they, hey, hey, we know Jesus and we're afraid of Jesus. We've been cast out of heaven by Jesus and our buddies have been cast into pigs and, you know, we gnosko Jesus. But then you have Paul I know. And that word know is epistemai, which means to be acquainted with, to know by proximity or to watch. So we know Jesus by experience, and we know Paul. We are well acquainted with Paul. We've been watching Paul. We know that he has the power of God, and he's being used, and he's cast out many of us, that Paul. You know, Jesus told Peter, hey, Satan knows about you, Peter. You're being used mightily, Peter, and Satan knows it, and Satan has asked for you, kind of in a way he asked for Job, he's asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, but I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you, Peter. Interesting, you know, that, that we forget so quickly that our battle in this world, in our homes, in our personal life, out in the world as little evangelists out there, our battle is not against flesh and blood, people and personalities. That is not what we fight against. Do you understand that? Our battle is against principalities and powers and forces of darkness in heavenly places. There's a very real battle that you read about in Ephesians chapter 6. And may the Lord give us the vision to see, hey, this is, this is spiritual warfare going on. This isn't just 
you know, a toothache, or this isn't just, sometimes it is just a toothache, but you know, this isn't just a fight in the car on the way to church. This isn't just a group of people kind of ticked off that you spoke about Jesus in a senior center, you know, or whatever. Uh, but this is spiritual. So pray, you know, put on the armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the shield of faith. Put on your armor so that you'll be able to fight, so you'll be able to stand. So you'll be able to use the weapons that God has prepared for you to fight in these areas. But just know this, that if you are someone who's standing for Jesus and is out there trying to further the kingdom and further the gospel and you're out ministering to people and praying, gosh, there's a target on your back. And get people around you that can be your armor bearers, that can be praying for you. They can pray for you during the day. That will pray that there will be, you know, more than a hedge of protection, as this comedian Tim Hawkins says. You know, thanks for praying for me that I have a little hedge of protection around me. Hope the devil doesn't jump over that. You know, he says, pray for a full concrete wall around me with barbed wire and machine guns. You know, that's pray that for me. (laughs) You know, pray for protection as we go out as missionaries into Prineville. In the surrounding areas. But we see here as these seven sons of Sceva and the others like them, we see that the power of Jesus isn't something that's just mechanical. Not just saying a word. It's not mechanical, nor is it something that can be used secondhand. Power of Jesus isn't something you find at the secondhand store. You know, don't rely upon your wife's relationship with Christ or that really passionate friend who just loves Jesus. Well, I've got that friend. Don't rely upon them. You can't be effective for the Lord if you're living off somebody else's relationship with Christ. It's got to be your relationship with Christ. That they might say, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. And yeah, I know you too. You have a personal relationship with the Lord, man. As you've been spending time with Jesus, you know, just like the, the, the Sanhedrin in the book of Acts, chapter 4, I think it is, they saw Peter and John. They knew that Peter and John were uneducated, but they knew they'd been with Jesus. And that the darkness in this town would say, hey, Rory, uneducated, doesn't have the big old plaque of Bible school graduation on his office wall. But man, he's been spending time with Jesus. We'll stay away from him. <laughs> he's got those prayer warriors around him that, man, they're raising up that concrete wall around him of, of prayer. You know, let's, another day, another day. <laughs> and so uh, we just see that, you know, it's not a secondhand relationship with Christ that's powerful and that's effective. We also note there in verse 16 that, Outside of Jesus Christ, we have no match. We're no match for supernatural forces uh, apart from Christ. I mean, these guys were seven of them. Here's one demon, and he just strips them down, beats them up. They're bleeding. They are, they are, they are terrorized by this, by this one demon. But in Jesus Christ, the devil and his demons are no match for Christians. There might be times, like in Mark chapter 9, where we need to pray and fast and be living in that that intimate contact with the Lord to have power over such an unclean spirit. But power we have, 
As Jesus said, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy, Luke 10, 19. We've been given that power. In 1 John 4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. The devil has been defeated at Calvary. He's stubborn. He tries to bite, but he's kind of like that lion that gets his teeth knocked out, you know, tries to bite, but just gumming you. He's trying to gum you. And so stand in the power and the might that, that Jesus has won for us on the cross. Stand in his might, not in your own. You know, so many Christians, you know, they wage this war against the devil and they begin talking to the devil. See that a lot more in, in some of the more Pentecostal churches. Devil, I am not going to play with you today. I've had enough, you know. And, and you, devil, you know, and, and sh- where in scripture do you see that nice little conversation going on? The only time that in spiritual warfare we see anything remotely to talking to the devil is when Jude references Michael the archangel fighting with the devil over Moses' body. And Michael doesn't even stand in his own power. He says, the Lord rebuke you. That's just a prayer. That's just praying. Lord rebuke him. Lord rebuke the enemy. We don't stand in what we've done or what we've accomplished. We stand in what Jesus has done. What he has accomplished. We also note from the seven sons of Sceva, we don't want to copy what other people are doing in their ministry for effectiveness. You know, using voices or tones or mannerisms, copying other people or, or some ministry was successful in another town or city. And so we're going to do that here as well. You know, we, we don't want to copy that. We want to be led by the spirit and what we do and not just have our little book of what's worked in the past. Let's write it down and follow it to the T. But as this happens, these poor guys, really, seven sons of Sceva, naked, wounded, uh, verse 7, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. This terror fell on them when they heard of the powers of the spiritual realm, how powerful even the powers of darkness are. In this terror fall, the people said, man, whew, I need the God who has the power and the authority over even these. I want God. I want Jesus. So often, maybe some of you here, your conversion was a conversion of terror. Realizing who God is, how powerful he is, and how much he loves you and what he's done to save you out of your sins by sending his own son to die on the cross to shed his blood that your sins could be forgiven, atoned for. And you realize that and you see, okay, on this end, terror, possibility for demon possession, (laughs) Uh, you know, no power over the devil or his angels in any way, as well as an eternity spent with the devil and his angels in that place prepared for the devil and his angels in hell, where Jesus says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Does that sound good to anybody? Got that in over over here. Wow. A personal relationship with the loving God who has power absolute and total power over the powers of darkness. They don't even hold a candle to him. And he'll love me and he'll 
never leave me or forsake me. And I'll get to spend eternity with him, seeing him face to face forever. Okay, man, I have a fear for this God because he's so awesome. And I have a fear against these things because, man, really, they're bad. And, you know, the Proverbs tell us, hey, the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Proverbs also tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. You know, a lot of churches, they don't want to teach on hell and they don't want to teach on the devil. and They don't want to teach about, you know, talk, even talk about demons. That's kind of old school stuff. It's real. The devil's powerful, but barely even holds a, you know, doesn't even hold a candle. Snuffed out completely compared to the power of Yahweh. But it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to, to encounter, uh, you know, those, the spiritual darkness. And, you know, I, I pray that you would fear the Lord today. You know, really, who cares about the devil and his angels? You know, they can't really do anything to you. But man, fear the one who has the power to cast you to hell. Jesus says, fear him, have a respect and a reverence for him. He calls you and points out lovingly your sin and the need to repent. Don't ignore that. Don't procrastinate on that. Don't harden your heart against that. But today, as Hebrews tells us, while it's still called today, Respond to Jesus. Respond to Jesus. I remember one of my good friends, I've mentioned it before, Ivan, back in high school. Uh, he was a drug user in high school. He sold drugs on his campus. Uh, went to a youth camp and really wasn't impressed with, you know, somehow got to this church camp. Wasn't impressed. Didn't yield his heart to the Lord, even though the Lord was just beckoning him and calling him. And, uh, and one day he was back in Corvallis after that camp, walking down 9th Street in the middle of the night and uh, just kept thinking about the word that was taught to him at that youth camp. And he just began to uh, have terror in his heart. He was afraid as he walked down 9th Street in the night and he bowed down his knees and he received Christ there by himself on 9th Street as the terror of, of the Lord and even just the terror of the thought of of what, what could come, what's to come. That terror prompted him to surrender his life to Christ. In verse 18, there's a lot of people that had that same type of terror moving them to heed the word of God, to heed the gospel. And it says, Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. These are believers who are saved. And they say, hey, you know what? There's, man, I want to get rid of this stuff. I, gotta, I, you know, I want to confess. This isn't the type of confession you go to a Catholic priest, you have to be forgiven by a man in order to be resolved of all guilt, you know? But, you know, it's just confessing to the Lord, number one. First John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you confessed your sins to Jesus? Have you confessed and said, Lord, I see what you see. It's here. It's disgusting. 
It's an abomination to you. It's a slap in your face. It's wrong. You're a holy God. I can't continue on in this any longer. I confess it to you. Yes, I've been involved in this. Yes, I've been rebelling against you. Yes, I've been you know, doing these things and going these places that, that I know is wrong. I know it's against what you'd have. And Lord, I see what you see. I confess and I repent. I turn from it, Lord. But then James also tells us that when we confess our sins to one another, we'll be healed. There's just a healing that takes place as we're real with one another. We say, yeah, I've been struggling with this. And man, would you mind just you know, encouraging me and praying for me throughout the day as you know that I'm tempted to go back into that again. And, and, you know, man, if you have any just, you know, scriptures or just words of encouragement that can help me press in, that'd be great. There's a healing that takes place as no longer is our sin kind of hidden and tucked away and nobody knows about it. But as the searchlight of the word of God comes in and reveals our sin, the enemy loses a powerful foothold in our lives. As we confess to the Lord and as we confess to others, they began to tell their deeds. In verse 19, And many of those who'd practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. This is a beautiful thing as this very idolatrous, demonic city with all sorts of, you know, just witchcraft galore. And, you know, really at the heart of idolatry is demonic activity. Ephesus just known to be the cesspool of, of demonic activity. That's why there were these uh, itinerant exorcists passing through. It was the place to get business done, you know. And, uh, and at that was, were just witches and those that would have what they called the Ephesian Gramata or these Ephesian letters that just were books, the bestseller of the day at Borders Bookstore Ephesus, you know. And it would just have all of these different chants, all of these different um, spells, all the hocus pocus of the day was in the Ephesian letters. It's this historical book, well known. And they would come and they would bring these books. They would see what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, his power over anything even named an idol, and they cast it into the bonfire. And so much of it was, so much of it was burned. That today's standards, about $4 million worth of books were burned. And it's such a beautiful thing as you see really just this evidence of repentance and evidence of salvation in these people's lives is their repentance of sin, their obedience to the gospel as they just take these books and they say, this is, this is nothing, this is garbage, this is a hindrance to my walk with Christ. And there's the temptation to go back to it as I live in this demonic, wicked, you know, Wiccan area. I don't want to have anything to do with the way my heart, where my heart used to go, where my mind used to focus on. I don't want any of that anymore. And so I burn it. I'm burning all bridges that link me back to my past life. That's a beautiful thing for a Christian to do. Never going back and never even giving an opportunity to go back. 
Love that story of the Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez as he sailed. You know, this wonderful, known to be a gifted orator, somehow got 200 sailors and soldiers to get on a couple different ships to sail across the vast ocean towards where the Aztecs were. I believe it was uh, as they parked their boats there in the sands of the Yucatan. Uh, there, uh, forget where it is exactly, but as they were there, uh, before, you know, everyone got their swords sharp and were ready to go contact, uh, combat the Aztecs and take and plunder this, this legendary gold reserve that they had, Hernando did this one last speech and he said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it just, everyone's getting pumped up by the speech. And his final part of his speech was burn the ships. And everyone, wait, no, what, what? He says, burn the ships. Either we are victorious here or we die. But if we go home, we go home on their ships. And so Cortez had them burn their ships there in the bay of the Yucatan. And they had a pretty victorious, uh, victorious fight. Have you burned your ships? Or is there still avenue for you to go back to the past life? So neat that in our church we have uh, a man that used to practice witchcraft. And uh, a couple years ago, just time in his life where a man in the community was witnessing and loving on him and sharing on him. And this man in our body just denounced Wicca and proclaimed the name of the Lord Jesus. And he burned his books of witchcraft right before he was baptized. Such a beautiful thing. And need to see the Lord just continuing to do a work in that man's life. What do you have? What do you have that... It's a, it's a link to your past life. Friendships, that you, you still have those friendships. And, and it's not just, you know, acquaintances where occasionally you email and trying to love the name of Christ and take them together with a bunch of Christian friends. But no, they are friends in your life that are causing you to stumble and to sin and you keep going back to them. Time to sever that relationship. Forms of entertainment that just seem to kind of carry you away into sinful behavior. Music that you listen to that, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong to listen to secular music, but there's music you listen to that it takes you places in your heart or it takes you places with your body and it causes you to sin. Forms of entertainment, the movies that you watch or the magazines that you get, whatever it is. And it's just, it's something that it causes you to stumble, causes you to go back and to backslide. And today as we close, and Stuart, you guys can come on up right now. Today as we close, it's just a beautiful time. We're going to have the prayer team come up. And just as you're here today, and my prayer is that just as you see how powerful the Lord is, as the Lord's been speaking to your heart, hey, it's time to come. It's time to surrender. Quit kicking against the goads. Quit fighting against me. That today you would surrender to Jesus. As he calls you today. And as you do, that you would just confess your sin before the Lord. Lord, I've been doing this. I've been going there. I've been saying these things. I've been with her or I've been with him. And I know that what I've been doing... It's sin. And you're a holy God. And you cannot be in the presence of sin. And so, Lord, take away my sin. Forgive me of my sin. 
But as the prayer team comes up, maybe you would even just come and just confess sin to the prayer team or grab a brother or a sister that you're comfortable here with today and you would just say, hey, I've been struggling with this. Man, could you pray for me? Could you encourage me? Could you be my accountability partner? You know, come, come confess sin. There's no shame here. Peter tells us there's no temptation that's overtaken you except that which is common to man. Nothing that you say is going to surprise us. We're going to be able to help you and encourage you. So I encourage you to confess your sin to one another just for that healing to take place. But I also encourage you today as we close that you would look at your life and look at those things that the Lord would have you burn today. Maybe you would just come up and and get prayer by somebody or grab that brother or sister and just say, there's these things. I need to burn them. Literally. I need to go home right now. I need to light a fire. I got to get rid of it. I've got to burn it. I've got to delete it off my computer. I've got to call that friend and say, hey, I love you. I really love you, but I'm a Christian. And when I spend time with you, I sin. And so I want to be with you. So if you'd be willing to come in these situations where it'd be, it'd be encouraging to hang out with you, or you know what? I just can't see you for a while. You have a hard heart towards Jesus and I just I can't be with you for a while. But sever those relationships that are causing you to sin. Let's just respond to the Lord today. And closing with verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. When did the word of the Lord grow mightily and prevail? As people were confessing their sins. As people were burning those old bridges to those past lives and saying, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me and the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. If you need prayer today, if you want to make that declaration today, just come forward. Just, there's a group of people up here that just love you and we pray for you. And it's our joy to get to stand with you in this. Let's close with that. Come forward and just get prayer. You'll know if the Lord would have you do that. You'll send them saying, go up. Don't miss out on what I have for you. Respond to me today. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you. 